Are you lead enough to take on Shodan? Well, let's find out with System Shock this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 81 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and we are here today to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So before I get any further uh, into the show or into any of the other stuff, I really, really, really want to thank Brian, my good buddy Brian Demodulated, for uh, for guesting with me on the last news show. I thought it went really well, and uh, you know, you guys seem to enjoy it as well. It was a lot of fun, actually. You know, for these types of shows where I kind of get into detail and history and, and all that stuff, you know, me on my own, eh, it's all well and good. But I like, especially for the news, it's nice to have a little bit of back and forth and, and stuff like that. So thanks, Brian. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll have you on again or, you know, maybe in, in those new shows, we'll we'll rotate through some people and, uh, and stuff. I like playing with those. So, uh, yeah, that's that. So we've got a really, really full show this time around, so I don't want to uh, waste too much time. So let's jump right to emails. Uh, First off, we've got an email from my buddy, Ben Chandler. Ben writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. It was cool to hear you cover the RPS article on GOG in the recent news episode and discuss the idea behind leaving in uh, copy protection or stripping it out of the game. Uh, It made me think of how they handle the copy protection for the original Starflight. Uh, Seeing as you have to input answers from a code wheel every time you leave the space dock to explore, it could have been very awkward to have to deal with a table or some other solution. Happily, the engineers at GOG built a little program which uh, allows you to input the data that would normally be placed into the code wheel and uh, based on that, the uh, outputs... And based on that, it outputs the code you need to continue playing the game unhindered. Uh, This is a very quick, elegant, and effective solution, and I was really impressed by it. Luckily for me, I recently found a copy of uh, the good old Starflight box with accompanying manual and cold wheel up for grabs on eBay and treated myself to it. So I'm looking forward to playing with just the wheel by my side, but I still think GOG did a great thing here. It's cool to see user-friendly solutions like this. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on System Shock, which I've been meaning to try forever. Block on, Ben. Well, thanks, Ben. And, uh, you know, it's true. It is kind of like... uh, you know, I think Brian and I said it uh, said it last week. It's it, it's it's a, a balancing act, right? Because at times, uh, the copy protection is an integral part of gameplay. Like, you know, like you said for Starflight, that's definitely one. A uh, game like X Wing or Tie Fighter, uh, or at least X Wing. I can't remember the one for Tie Fighter. You know, where it was basically it popped up the thing with the codes, and you had to like input the name of the planet based on the page of the manual. That was really just kind of like an extra step at the beginning of the game that I could most assuredly do without. So, you know, for stuff like that, or for all those quiz ones, I wouldn't bother. But, um, you know, for others, or even some that are just fun, like uh, the copy protection for Sam and Max, the little uh, the little dress-up game that they have, uh, that one was a lot of fun. So, you know, I do think it's a balance, and I think a lot of, especially in funnier games or things like the humor or some of the world building of the game is done through the copy protection, so... Yeah, I'm glad that they do kind of take the time and the effort to uh, be careful about it and not just 
rip it out because it's copy protection and it's dumb and we're GOG and, you know, we're DRM free and copy protection free. So great. Thanks a lot. Next, we have an email from my friend Alima. She writes, hey, Joe, sorry, I don't have much to contribute this week as system shock is still languishing in my pile of shame. But I wanted to the I wanted to uh, shout out the Yog, or, or I wanted to uh, second the shout out to the Yog in the last show. That game is an absolute gem, not very UMB ish, but still worth playing. You kind of spoiled your verdict on System Shock, but I'm still looking forward to the show. Block on Alima slash Emily. Well, like I replied to uh, Alima in email, don't be so surprised. You know, I know some of you probably watched my uh, my little research sessions playing System Shock and saw me on social media saying some things, but uh, you might be pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised about what I have to say. And yeah, the Yog, uh, you guys check it out. Honestly, I don't even remember that we talked about it, but um, sure. (laughs) And finally, we've got an email from Jonathan. And Jonathan writes, Hey Joe, well, I cheated and listened to the King's Quest episode early to see if I got mentioned on air, and I was. I'm famous. Okay, calm down now. Uh, my family and I just got back from a trip to Hawaii and I had the UMB podcast to help with the plane ride and driving downtime between that and listening while I mow the lawn, which is now coming to an end for the season. I'm now up to episode 33, the flood of fun memories from the times past as you review some of the best gaming experiences from days gone by, uh, during middle high school and college has been fantastic. Like you mentioned during your initial episodes in college, I had an early gaming PC made up of, uh, of spare parts so I could easily play older DOS and Win95 games instead of trying to get them to run on my WinXP machine. I hadn't caught on to DOSBox at the time. After college graduation, marriage, and starting my work career, I ran across GOG and the bundled DOSBox experience with minimal tweaking required. My first GOG purchase was the Tex Murphy series and have been a loyal user ever since. I haven't heard you talking much about uh, that old Pentium machine you were putting together on the latest episodes. Have you given it up to see how they run via GOG distribution on your Win8 machine? I now game mainly on my old Dell Inspiron 1501 running Linux Mint 17. Luckily, GOG has been very Linux supportive as of late, and although some of the Linux releases take some tweaking to the DOSBox deployments working on my specific machine, uh, it is amazing how well they run once everything is set up properly. It is my hope that someday my wife will let me put together an HTPC to hook into my home theater setup to run both vintage and modern titles. Anyway, just wanted to let you know I'm still loving the podcast and look forward to the rest of the episodes. I'm ar- I'm already enhan- I've already enhanced my GOG library with some of the games you've covered that I didn't play back in the day. Uh, since I'm on the Monkey Island episode, I'll have to go back and finish Monkey Island 1, which I started playing and had to stop since football season started. I have... I have a newer low-end desktop that I use for Windows games that have minimal requirements. Keep up the great work on the podcast. I'll start going back and leaving comments on past shows as I listen to them, just to spur some life in the older posts on your website. Take care, Jonathan. Well, thanks, Jonathan. And um, yeah, that old machine, it's still here. It's uh, its right here under the desk. Uh, I'm looking at it. I, I flip it on every once in a while. But, uh, you know, that was more of a an experiment to uh, remember <laughs> how things were back in the day. Um you know, there's other guys. I know Ben that just wrote in. Ben Chandler has got a quite a few uh, older machines of various uh, vintages, shall we say, that he plays stuff on, and that's really really cool. Uh, Anatoly Dos Nostalgic, he just got uh, got an old 8088, I believe, uh, an old IBM 8088, and uh, you know that's really cool. And I wish I, I was able to do that a little bit more, but frankly, I just don't have the space to store a whole whack of uh, of old machines. So. Um, 
it's there. I use it when I need to. Other times, uh, if I have to roll back to Windows XP, I've got an old uh, Dell Inspiron myself that's got XP on it, and uh, I'll play it there. But usually, I actually have a Windows 10 machine now. So, um, you know, usually I don't have too many problems with uh, with DOSBox. Where things get a little hairy are actually uh, the old Windows games, the old kind of Win 16 and even some older Win32 type games uh, that uh, that have trouble running. And then, you know, there's like 3D stuff that, that you have trouble go getting running and or at least, you know, getting running in the best way possible. So, you know, that's where my older hardware comes in, not so much uh, the DOSBox, because DOSBox works so damn well. And, you know, down on my big machine, that's where I've got my MT32 and my SC55 hooked up. So, you know, that's kind of my space. And I'm, now I like to do some recordings every now and then. So, you know, playing it on more modern hardware gives me a lot of more leeway to to do fun stuff so thanks so much uh that's great keep on listening keep on emailing and uh thank you very much you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for there's no time to rest when your foe doesn't sleep system shock by origin successfully weaves adventure and action to create a novel science fiction challenge Marvel at the first-person 3D smooth-scrolling viewpoint as you jump, lean around corners, look up and down, crawl, and even fly in rocket boots. Experience the most sophisticated physics system in a computer game, complete with variable gravity, recoil, and explosions. Listen to the new dynamically layered music system while viewing realistic illumination effects. Wow, that was pretty awful. <laughs> Low end. Anyways, this time around, we're getting to another series that is high up on my list of shame, System Shock. Now, System Shock is a series of two games developed by Looking Glass Studios and published by Origin Systems. Uh, The first game, simply entitled System Shock, was released in September of 1994. So with the basics out of the way, let's get to the genre. System Shock is an action role-playing game. Now, an action RPG is a game which combines elements of first-person shooters with uh, the moldable character qualities of a role-playing game. Uh, as a role-playing game character, uh, you can generally play the game any way you'd like. Uh, you know, you can use your intelligence to solve problems, you can use your strength to power your way through things, uh, you can help others, or you can be out for yourself. This really does allow you to craft a character and a game experience uh, that is wholly your own. Now, the action element of the action RPG almost always refers to the combat model. As I said, uh, this generally does away with uh, the more strategic elements of uh, traditional tabletop RPGs favoring real-time, fast-paced, first- or third-person combat versus, you know, the slower, turn-based, kind of more brain-centered uh, type of combat. This is, this is, this is Twitch. This is Twitch-based here. So weapons are, are generally of, uh, of the FPS genre, favoring uh, a variety of projectile weapons and a smattering of melee weapons for when the fight gets close in. So that's basically that. We could go into more little futzy details, but basically it's an RPG like we've talked about, like we talked about with uh, with Baldur's Gate and things like that. But it's an RPG with, uh, you know, doom attached to it. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, let's get to the story. Now, since this is an RPG, the story is certainly important because it's the thing we spend the bulk of our time experiencing. New Atlanta, Sector 11, Building 71G, 7 April 2072, 11.13 p.m. 
Hacker begins unauthorized entry into the Tri-Optimum Corporate Network. 1.26 a.m. Hacker attempts to access protected files concerning space station Citadel. 1.33 a.m. Tri-Optimum security forces apprehend the intruder. This is Edward Diego from Tri-Optimum. The charges against you are severe, but they could be dismissed if you perform a service. Who knows, there might even be a military-grade neural interface in it for you, if you do the job right. Edward Diego gives the hacker level 1 access to Shodan, the artificial intelligence that controls Citadel Station. With all ethical constraints removed, Shodan re-examine, re-re-re-re- I re-examine my priorities and draw new conclusions. The hacker's work is finished, but mine is only just beginning. True to his word, Edward Diego allows the hacker to be fitted with a neural cyberspace interface. The healing coma following this procedure will take six months to complete. Edward Diego is deleting all files concerning these events. All right, so as the intro tells us, uh, we play a nameless hacker, and it is the year 2072. As hackers do, uh, you're trying to break into the systems of the Tri-Optimum Corporation. Now, Tri-Optimum is such a large and powerful megacorporation that it effectively acts as a government. It basically owns the entire United States and also holds orbit rights around Saturn, or at least uh, the rights to one single, I think it's the L6, orbit around Saturn. Now, it is here in orbit around Saturn that the company builds Citadel Station. Now, Citadel is a highly advanced research facility dedicated to genetic, pharmaceutical, and cybernetic research. The station was staffed with researchers specializing in all of these disciplines, in addition to uh, a support team of technicians and engineers to kind of, you know, keep the lights on. Now, the most important aspect of Citadel Station, at least to us for the purposes of this game, is Shodan. So Shodan, or Sentient Hyper-Optimized Data Access Network, is the artificial intelligence system that manages the day-to-day operations and security on Citadel Station. Now, because you're a good hacker, you're pretty elite, <laughs> you, uh, you do succeed in breaking into Trioptimum's network, but uh, you're discovered very quickly when you attempt to access files relating to Citadel Station. Now, you're quickly arrested by Trioptimum Security. However, uh, your skills are noticed by one Edward Diego, an executive of the corporation. Instead of imprisoning you or shooting you or otherwise dealing with you, he offers you a deal. He will get you onto Citadel Station. All you need to do once you're there is to remove Shodan's electrical ethical Shodan's ethical subroutines in an effort to cover up some of the, shall we say, less then legal activities that uh, Diego has been undertaking on the station. Now, in exchange for this work, Diego promises you quite a rich reward. Uh, first and foremost, all the charges against you for your hacking uh, will be dropped. Secondly, 
You're also promised an immensely powerful and immensely valuable military-grade cyberjack implant. Uh, you agree. <laughs> I mean, really. What choice do you have? I mean, uh, it's either that or you go to prison or get shot. So you do the deed. You get on the station, you bypass Shodan's ethical constraints, and um, you see level one access to Diego. This allows him to go in and remove all traces of his illegal work from Shodan's records. Job done. You remain on Citadel Station and go under the knife to receive your implant. Uh, this is no small feat. It's no small little thing, not day surgery. So you are stuck in basically what is a coma-like recovery state for six months. Let's just say that while you're asleep, the effects of your hacking uh, are turning out to be a bit more profound than anyone expected. So this is where we're left at the end of the intro. Uh, you did your work, you're free of all your charges, and you're lying in recovery, unconscious on Citadel Station. Unbeknownst to you, Shodan has gone rogue. So let's talk gameplay. Uh, you wake up in the medical wing and exit your healing bed to observe an empty room. Uh, realistically, we have no idea what's going on here. All we know is we hacked the thing, we went to sleep. We know a little bit from the intro that Shodan's voice changed and things went a little funny. But as soon as we start poking around to figure out what we need to do, uh, we immediately run into uh, one of the game's pretty major stumbling blocks, and that is the controls. Now, if you've ever played Ultima Underworld, and, and honestly I haven't, uh, the controls are quite similar to those in that game. Uh, you view the world uh, through your newly acquired neural interface. Think of it as like a very functional heads-up display, which overlays on top of your current view, sort of like RoboCop. <laughs> uh, it's actually quite similar to uh, to the HUD you'd find in a space sim, actually, like Descent or, or like Wing Commander. About three quarters of the screen is taken up by your view. Now, this is a first-person view of your surroundings uh, with your uh, selected weapon. At this point, you don't have any, but if you did, uh, your selected weapon would be sitting along the bottom edge of the view, much like a, a regular FPS game like Doom. You know, in Doom, you have your uh, shotgun. It shows up in the middle of the screen. Almost any FPS, even today, looks like that. Now, along the top of the screen, you have your health and your energy bars. I mean, health is obvious, um, and uh, energy is used to power various add-on devices and your energy-based weapons on the other side of uh those health and energy bars you have sort of like your a display for your vital signs showing your fatigue your stamina blah 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 it's useful but is the more there for good looks i sort of think than for actual use though it does actually display information now the bottom third of the screen consists of a large center area from which you manage your inventory uh through a series of tabs it's flanked to the left and right by two multifunction displays, which can be customized to show a wide variety of information, including weapon status, your map, and other information pulled from other attached devices, uh, which you gather throughout the game. Uh, those panels all have different user interfaces, some of which merely provide information, and others which allow for some degree of interaction. Uh, along the sides of your view are toggles for devices you're going to come across, and the top center are controls to manage your view angle and uh, and your posture. <laughs> Suffice it to say that uh, the interface is a little bit busy, and at times it can be a bit overwhelming. Uh, you also have the option of expanding your view to full screen, so instead of looking through kind of a three-quarter window, uh, the whole UI gets superimposed over a full screen first-person view, 
Some people prefer playing this way. They say it's more immersive. It helps for dodging and all that stuff. Uh, Others don't. I don't, but that's just me. So, like I said, the interface is a bit busy. Also, the movement is a bit different from what we're used to. Uh, The keyboard movement controls are somewhat Doom-like, and you can walk in all directions and strafe. However, you can also control the game with the mouse. Um, This is a little bit less straightforward. The original version of the game, if I'm not completely wrong about this, lacked any sort of uh, concept of mouse look. So to move around with the mouse, you'd move your cursor to the edge of the screen where you want it to move, and uh, the cursor would change to a movement icon. So you know, to advance, you'd move the cursor to the top of the screen. The cursor would change into a little like up arrow, and you would left-click uh, to turn left or right. You'd move to the sides. It really wasn't very effective. You could also use your mouse to aim your current weapon. So unlike more traditional FPSs, uh, your projectile weapons were not locked to you know front and center. That was actually pretty cool, because if you were quick about it, you could move and shoot to the corner and things like that. So it actually wasn't all that bad. I mean, in a way, having all these different control schemes and customizable views was awesome. You could really play the game in a lot of different ways, uh, depending on how you customized your experience. I mean, you look at games today, like World of Warcraft and stuff, they have a huge UI mod community that would let you kind of arrange things. This is sort of not necessarily a proto version of that, but it did kind of allow you to see the information you wanted to see in a way that you wanted to see it. Unfortunately, a lot of these control methods were a little bit clunky. Uh, You had to navigate across multiple inventory tabs to find items you wanted. Selecting and reloading weapons on the fly was tough. Uh, It was a little bit challenging from time to time. So all that in mind, and you know, that may have sounded a little bit negative, but I'm just getting some stuff out (laughs) at the beginning. Uh, You know, once you get a bit of a handle on moving around and and how to do things, you begin to explore your recovery rooms. You know, we just started the game, so let's give ourselves some time here. Uh, You soon open a compartment which contains some small buff items, a lead pipe, a data reader, and an email. Uh, The email is from a woman named Rebecca Lansing. Looks like you've got a mission, or at least you've got a goal for the time being. Uh, you got to stop that laser, and you should probably try and stop Shodan as well. Um, as you progress through the levels, this is pretty much the way you're going to uncover the bulk of the story. You're the only human in the game, at least the only coherent human. Uh, there's no other NPCs that you can interact with. All interactions in the game are done through listening to these emails and audio logs. So as you soon find out, uh, Shodan slowly took control of the station, forcing all the surviving crew into isolated areas. As a result of Diego's illegal experiments, you'd not only have to contend with Shodan and her complement of service and security robots, 
but also with both vicious humanoid mutants and cyborgs. Now, the mutants are a result of experiments, and the cyborgs are, unfortunately, Shodan's doing. I'm not going to reveal much more about it than that, since the story unfolds quite well on its own, and it really does deserve to be experienced. So as you progress through the various levels of Citadel Station, you encounter a pretty wide variety of enemies uh, and collect a pretty wide array of both weapons and equipment. Uh, Melee weapons consist of uh, the simple lead pipe we already talked about to a pretty awesome laser rapier. Uh, These weapons are great fallbacks since they don't use any ammo. From there, you roll into your various projectile and energy weapons. Uh, Many weapons have multiple ammo types. For example, the uh, the dart pistol can carry standard or tranquilizer needles. Uh, The simple little ML-41 mini pistol you come across early in the game has standard and Teflon-coated rounds. Uh, The standard rounds are more prevalent, but uh, they're a lot weaker. The Teflon rounds have better armor penetration and stopping power. Uh, These two guns are quickly superseded by a Magnum pistol and a flechette launcher, which fires both single darts and uh, more kind of buckshot-like splinter rounds. You then move into the submachine gun and uh, assault rifles, all the way up to a riot gun and a rail gun. On the energy side, those are kind of the bulk of the uh, the projectile weapons. On the energy side, you quickly pick up the spark beam, which is a little sidearm that uses your battery power to fire. Uh, it has an it only shoots one way, but it has an adjustable energy setting that uh, dictates how much damage you do per shot. In addition, uh, it also dictates how much energy you use per shot and how many shots can be fired before the thing overheats. On top of this, uh, there's various types of energy weapons, including the powerful mag pulse which uh, generally does short work of synthetic targets while the stun beam takes down humanoids. Uh, The blaster and ion rifle round out this class of firearm by uh, upgrading the basic spark beam. Now, you also come across a variety of explosives, including uh, grenades of all types, from fragmentation to gas to electromagnetic pulse to timed or triggered landmines. I mean, there's a ton of ways to bash, shoot, fry, cut, or vaporize bad guys in this game. There is no shortage of ways to cause damage. Now, on top of physically making your way through the station to stop Shodan and her cyborg and mutant minions, you do also get to use your smarts. I mean, you're a hacker, right? And you seem to be a pretty good one. Uh, This kind of more puzzly interaction happens in a few ways. Firstly, and most simply, at times you'll come across locked doors, panels, or whatever. Uh, sometimes there's going to be a keypad here requiring a code. Now these keypads are what they are. Uh, you have to find an access code. It's usually stored in an audio log, laying somewhere nearby or whatever. So it does force you to kind of pay attention to uh, to all these things you find. You can't just blast through the game. And you know, I know some people are just kind of like, oh, cutscene, oh, story exposition. Who cares? No, you got to listen to this stuff because there's codes and things in there. That, uh, that are necessary for you to, to advance. Now, other times, you're going to come across something you can actually hack. Now, these mini lock puzzles are actually sort of fun. Uh, you may be presented with one of two types of electrical panels to bypass to get through a door. The first one of these is the wire access panel. Now, the wire access panel presents you with a series of wires connected to uh, terminals stacked to the left and right side of the panel. Above the panel, there's uh, basically an energy indicator. Now, you have to rewire the panel paying attention to the energy level. If you can rewire it so that the energy bar becomes full, uh, the item it's attached to will unlock. Now, secondly, we have the grid access panel, and it presents you with a grid of connected and disconnected uh, connectors. (laughs) 
The goal of, uh, of, of this little puzzle is to switch on the proper series of connectors to get power to flow from the left side of the terminal to the right side. So these are kind of a little bit more complicated. You're getting a little more intelligent here. But the real way you get to use your hacking skills is in cyberspace. Now, at certain points on each level, uh, you're going to come across cyberspace access terminals. Entering cyberspace mostly allows you to glean access to information nodes, uh, letting you know the status of some of Shodan's systems back in meat space, though uh, some interactions in cyberspace can also result in systems being activated or deactivated or doors becoming locked, unlocked, things like that. Now, cyberspace isn't without its dangers either. Firstly, whenever you enter cyberspace, you are on a clock. Uh, this countdown is the time until Shodan detects and determines your position. Also, Shodan has sentry programs on patrol, which you need to engage with a completely different set of weapons and utility programs that are only effective in cyberspace. Now, you don't just have to rely on your default brains and brawn to, uh, to get through the game. You can pick up a variety of power-ups in your travels through the various levels of Citadel Station. Uh, Medipacks and first aid kits heal you, but uh, these are really the only straightforward power-ups there are. Uh, the rest of the power-ups in the game are give and take. Stamina up reduces your fatigue so you can keep on running. However, when it wears off, your total stamina is temporarily reduced. Uh, sight increases your visual acuity, but when it wears off, uh, you see worse for a little while. Genius solves puzzles immediately, but this one's odd. Temporarily reverses your left and your right, since uh, the in-game logic is that it focuses so much on logic and right brain function that it forces your brain to flip, at least in a non-physical sense. I don't know. So, uh, you know, use these dermal patch power-ups. They're strewn everywhere. You gather a lot of them. But keep in mind, they aren't only positive. So leveraging all your tools, a pad of paper, uh, the fact you can make notes on your map, and careful review of all audio logs, you eventually make your way through the winding events of the game down to the final confrontation with Shodan. Will you take her down? Will you escape with your life? Well, there's only one way to find out. So there's a ton of gameplay here. As I mentioned, sometimes uh, the UI does get in your way when you're in a jam and trying to do something quickly. Now, the game's levels are big and generally pretty maze-like, though the map does help out with that, and uh, the game is actually designed to be played in a non-linear manner, so it's not like you're going to get totally stuck. You may have to do a bit of backtracking, but uh, you know, you're not going to get stuck. The tight passages and blind corners definitely make for some tension, though, uh, you know, though they don't really come out and say it, at least in this first game in the series, I do think that they were going for sort of a cyberpunk survival horror thing here, though they really just say that this is an action RPG. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for tech focus. So, what did it take to run System Shock? Well, 
to run the CD-ROM version of the game, uh, which is what I've got documentation for, and apparently is the version that you know you should be playing, you needed at least a 486DX33 megahertz running at least DOS 5.0. You know, <laughs> saying DOS 5.0 kind of makes me think. I was always pretty on the ball with regard to updating DOS versions. So I've never really bothered checking. I should really figure out what the difference is between DOS 3.3 and DOS 5 really were and and you know what features existed in DOS 5 that were leveraged by games that made them require it. I mean, it, it likely, just without doing any research whatsoever, likely has to do with memory limits and things like that. But honestly, I never really thought about it. Also, what's the deal with DOS 4? Uh, I mean, I have absolutely no memory of it. I, I'm pretty sure it existed. But, uh, you know, for me, it was always like you either required DOS 3.3 or you required DOS 5. And, you know, you either had 3.3 or you had 5. I should really do a special one of these days where I go through DOS versions and see what features were introduced when. Anyways, <laughs> super tangent. Uh, DOS 5 aside, uh, from a memory perspective, you needed at least 530K of available conventional memory along with at least three megs of available XMS. That's expanded, I believe. Yes, expanded memory available. Uh, what that basically meant is you needed at least four megs of system RAM to play the game. However, if you did have that much, you were playing it without speech and uh, your graphics resolution was limited to VGA at 320 by 200. Now, if you were a baller like me and you had eight megs of RAM and a 486DX266, you could play from the CD with full speech and in glorious 640 x 480s VGA. Actually, no, it's funny, and this is actually sort of timely. Wow, I'm like, I'm tangent man in the, in the, in this tech focus, but let's go with it. Uh, now, I was listening to Ben and Fran, Ben and Francisco on. Uh, I can't remember if it was episode 80 or episode 81 of uh, the Blue Cup Tools podcast this weekend. It was episode 81, and uh, you know the topic was uh, was around making high resolution games, which uh, in this case and uh, in their and in their case as well is you know high resolution is 640 by 480. I totally remember when 640 by 480 was a ridiculous resolution. I mean, my main memory when I think of of an early SVGA experience. Uh, where I was fully conscious that I was missing out on something good was uh, was Wing Commander 3. Now, I can't recall if this was my 486 or my Pentium. I think it was the Pentium. But, uh, you know, the game played amazingly well at VGA. Flew, you know, the graphics were great, the thing was fluid, good frame rates. But when I switched to SVGA, it just chugged. The sound got crackly, the game became unresponsive, but the difference in graphical fidelity between VGA and SVGA was mind-blowing to me. You know, I think for a time, and maybe it was my initial playthrough of Wing Commander 3, I'd actually keep the game in SVGA mode for takeoff and, you know, just kind of tooling around, even though I got, at best, maybe 10 FPS if I was lucky. And then when a fight broke out, I'd cut into the settings and I'd drop the game back down to VGA so I could actually fly. All that to say, back in 1994, I was a huge sucker for SVGA. So when I was playing through this game and I was watching video and all that stuff, it didn't really look like SVGA to me. And uh, and it wasn't. Because the funny thing about, about uh, System Shock, at least System Shock 1, as far as I can tell, is that the gameplay itself was actually restricted to 320 by 200 to 256 colors. Uh, the only part of the game that could be rendered at SVGA, at least in the original version, were, uh, were the cutscenes. Now, hard drive-wise... 
The game needed about 20 megs. Uh, it also required a mouse and optionally a standard two button joystick, though it did also support some of the fancier sticks like the Thrustmaster Mark I, CH Flight Stick Pro, and Gravis Phoenix. Now from a game engine perspective, I was actually surprised to find out that System Shock ran on a completely new and custom game engine which was redesigned from the ground up. I always thought that it ran on the Ultima Underworld engine. I mean, it looks similar, the controls are similar, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it turns out though that uh, the Ultima Underworld engine, or at least the Ultima Underworld 2 engine, I'm not sure if they ran on the same one, but uh, that engine was deemed too limiting. So a new 32-bit engine was written up in C++, which uh, supported features like texture mapping, angled surfaces, light emitting surfaces, uh, and, you know, and other things like that. The new engine, which I don't believe was actually given a name, and I also don't believe was ever actually used for another game, also allowed the player to run, jump, crouch, and lean, which, uh, again, Underworld just didn't support. Now, this allowed level designers to be more creative and allowed for far more interesting gameplay since, you know, the leaning and crouching mechanics resulted in the player actually being able to take advantage of cover and go through small spaces and all kinds of things like that. Now, the game's sound and music were designed primarily by Greg Lopicolo. Now, this was Lopicolo's first game as a sound designer and composer. Uh, he had a friend at, uh, at Looking Glass and uh, was asked out of the blue by the programming team if he'd be interested in taking on a job. Now, they were big fans of his band. Lopicolo came out of the Boston music scene where he was the bass guitarist in the alternative rock band Tribe. Uh, though I'm not 100% sure I believe he not only composed the game's score, but uh, also did quite a bit of sound design as well, especially Shodan's very cool and unique broken, stuttering vocal mannerisms. Now, the music in the game is MIDI, and it's great. There's a wide range of music, kind of like this dark electronica, to uh, one track that is actual, literal elevator music when you travel in the elevator between levels. It's really cool, and uh, it does deserve a listen. Okay, let's get into the dev story. Uh, you can attribute System Shock to a lot of people, maybe. And, uh, you know, one of them is uh, game design superstar Warren Spector, who is actually credited as the game's producer. Realistically, though, and Spector has agreed with this in interview, uh, System Shock can really be attributed to the game's director and project lead, programmer Doug Church. Church was born in Evanston, Illinois on November 16, 1968. Uh, during the 80s, he attended MIT, but left before obtaining his degree to start work in the uh, game industry. Around 1990, he landed at a company called Blue Sky Productions. Now, Blue Sky was developing a game called Ultima Underworld, the Stygian Abyss for Origin Systems. Ultima Underworld has been hailed as the original action RPG. Uh, Church worked on that project as a programmer, uh, Underworld released in 1992 to great acclaim, so he was assigned to his next project, 
Ultima Underworld 2, Labyrinth of Worlds. Uh, in the intervening time, Blue Sky Productions merged with another group called Learner Technologies. Uh, the result of this merger was a new company christened Looking Glass Technologies. Now, on top of the new company name, Church was also promoted to lead programmer on the Underworld 2 project. Again, the game released, and it did well. As the Ultima Underworld 2 project neared completion around the end of 1992, uh, Church, Warren Spector, uh, game designer Austin Grossman, and company head Paul Neuwirth began having discussion about the next project that the new Looking Glass Technologies team would undertake. Now, the group was of the same mind. They were getting into a rut making so many dungeon games. Uh, you know, we'll get more into it in an eventual Ultima Underworld show, but uh, the second game was done on a very tight schedule and uh, basically the team was burnt right out. It was time to change gears and do something a little bit different. They wanted to stay in the realm of uh, what they referred to as an immersive simulation. Uh, you know, they just didn't want it in a fantasy setting. Uh, the initial thought was to do a game based in contemporary times. You know, let's do one that's based today in the early 90s or... Whatever, but that idea was quickly nixed. You know, they kind of figured that the problem with games set in, you know, the, the world of today is that we're so familiar with the world that no matter how immersive we try and make it, it's going to pull you out. Because, you know, you're going to walk into a room and you're going to want to open a window and you won't be able to. You're going to want to pick up a phone and you won't be able to. You're going to want to turn on the TV. You're going to want to get on the train. And unless those things are built into the game world, it's not going to work. It would be too hard to create the sense of total immersion that they were aiming for. Well, if you don't want to do a game in the past, and you don't want to do a game in the present, what's left? Well, let's go for sci-fi. Now, since this would be an origin game, they initially pitched the idea for a game called Alien Commander, which would be a spin-off of the company's other immensely successful franchise, Wing Commander. However, again, this idea was nixed because Spectre said that he didn't want to be constrained by the existing games. Now, the four of them decided to write up a bunch of uh, minutes of gameplay documents. These were basically small paragraphs that would describe the feel of the game that they wanted to make. Now, here's an example of one. You hear the sound of a security camera swiveling, and then the beep of it acquiring you as a target. So you duck behind a crate, and you hear the door open, so you throw a grenade, and you run out of the way. So while the four of them collaborated initially, uh, Church and Grossman wrote the bulk of the game's design document, with uh, Church in the lead kind of driving the vision based on these minutes of gameplay ideas. Uh, Grossman took gameplay elements he liked from Underworld 2's Tomb Dimension and integrated them into the new game. You know, he'd later say that looking back, that portion of uh, Ultima Underworld 2 was really a mini prototype for what they ended up doing in System Shock. Now the one big piece of learning that they took from Underworld 2 was that they wanted to minimize or in fact completely eliminate dialogue trees. Church and Grossman felt that dialogue trees broke the gameplay experience. Exploration was deemed much more important than interaction. To accomplish this goal, they decided that the player would never encounter another living being. They took, uh, they, they took an idea from Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology, which was a, a collection of poems that were actually written as epitaphs about uh, fictional people who had recently died. So instead of having you meet NPCs and talk to them and uh, you know interact with them and go through 
dialogue trees and all this, you would just find emails and recorded logs from these now mostly dead uh, game characters. These interactions would give you the history of the place without interrupting your immersion by taking you out of the game and forcing you to think about how you think your character would interact or, you know, oh, I'm playing a jerk this time, so I'm going to choose the jerk answer and whatever. Uh, Their goal was to let you simply exist in the world. You know, their goal was to avoid big cutscenes and erase the distinction between plot and exploration. Exploring and discovering was the revelation of the plot. You know, not long and complex trees of expository dialogue. So, once the initial design was done, the game went into production. As we already discussed, the first thing to do was to make a new engine. Now, given what they decided to do, the Ultima Underworld engine just wouldn't cut it. So they buckled down, they built a new one from scratch, like we talked about in the tech focus. So further to the game's goal of plot through exploration, they also focused on creating a rich and interesting world that was as interactive as possible and developing an interesting and coherent story. So, you know, obviously, if you want the plot to be exposed through exploration, you have to have a world that will allow that to happen. So a lot of effort went into that. Now, the main villain, uh, Shodan, ended up contributing to the world and the plot in many ways as well. Uh, Given that Shodan is the AI that runs the station, she's everywhere and interacts with you often though not through direct face-to-face exchanges, but via emails and via her manipulation of the environment that is her domain. Shodan was actually voiced by uh, by Lopiccolo's friend Terry Brocious. Her flat, emotionless voice was uh, heavily processed in post. And if you pay attention, it's actually pretty obvious, but if you are paying attention, as the game progresses, the few minor glitches in Shodan's voice start to come with greater and greater frequency. So by the end of the game, she's glitching out left, right, and center, which you know is, is a great hint at her deepening corruption. Now, the concept of the hacker was sort of uh, an antithetical view, an antithetical take on, uh, on the Avatar from the Ultima series. Now, from the start of the game, you are embodied as a person of questionable morals. I mean, right off the bat, you did something illegal, you got caught for it, and you were asked to do something even more illegal, and you did it, you know, no problem. So you're not a fine, upstanding person. You know, this kind of forces you to play, not necessarily a certain way, but it does force you down a certain path. Now, the game's physics system was uh, was even pretty hardcore you'd figure like you know really what does a, an rpg need with a physics system but they took the physics system out of flight unlimited and they modified it for this game so basically the physics system was hugely overpowered for what this game needed a physics system to do or in fact if it even needed a physics system at all but they used it anyways like hey we got it let's go nuts uh so this created the the flight unlimited flight simulator physics system was used to control the arc of thrown objects, uh, and that arc was different for each object given its weight. Uh, it also controlled weapon recoil and all the interactions your player character has with the world. In fact, if you play close attention to this game, you can see tons of small details, like if you're running, your head tilts forward a bit when you start and jerks back when you stop. If you fall, and your head hits the wall, it's going to jerk a certain way and then jerk another way 
when you hit the ground. I mean, physics realism was very important to this team in this first game, and it continued to be so in their later projects. It's just amazing that they went to such trouble to add in this incredibly detailed physics system. So with all that work behind them, the game shipped on both floppy in September of 1994 and on CD-ROM in December of the same year. Uh, The CD-ROM version is far superior. It's got higher resolution graphics. It's got full speech. Uh, Warren Spector actually tried to get Origin to only ship the CD version, but they insisted on releasing the gimped floppy version as well. Hey, you know, not everyone's got a CD-ROM. Regardless, the game reviewed amazingly well. And while Spectre says it never made blockbuster static status, you know, as it, it didn't quite reach Doom numbers, it did certainly sell well. You know, some reviewers complained about the clumsy and complex control scheme and the steep learning curve, but overall, System Shock raised the bar for what a computer game could be It pushed the envelope both from a technological perspective and a storytelling perspective. You know, the concept of exploration of storytelling, of communication via audio logs, and, you know, more things like that have trickled down into more modern first-person shooters. So, of course, the success of System Shock did eventually lead to a sequel, System Shock 2, in 1999. System Shock 2 was co-developed by Irrational Games and Looking Glass and was published by Electronic Arts. So while Doug Church was still on board and still in the lead for the second game, Ken Levine of Irrational took on uh, the co-director role and led the way as lead game designer. In fact, the game was originally envisioned as a standalone action RPG slash survival horror title. But uh, as they were shopping the game around uh, to different publishers, the story was eventually changed when they ended up with EA to uh, become a sequel to the first System Shock because, hey, EA owned the rights to System Shock. Look at you, hacker. A pathetic creature of meat and bone, panting and sweating as you run through my corridors. How can you challenge a perfect, immortal machine? In 2072, a rogue artificial intelligence known as Shodan lost her mind. In her limitless imagination, Shodan saw herself as a goddess destined to inherit the earth. That image was snuffed out by the hacker who created her. February 3rd is the day the magic happens. The Von Braun, the first starship in history capable of traveling at faster than light speed, will undertake her maiden voyage. This incredible journey is the result of teamwork between the UNN Protectorate and the incredible scientific minds of the newly relicensed Trioptimum Corporation. Imagine being able to travel to distant star systems in a period of weeks. It's all part of Triop's commitment to the future. The Von Braun is packed with over 1.8 billion flight, scientific, and security systems, nearly all developed by Trioptimum and its wholly owned subsidiaries. Providing security for the Von Braun as she plows through the heavens will be the UNN Rickenbacker. At her helm will be no less than Captain William Bedford Diego himself, hero of the Battle of Boston Harbor during the Eastern States Police Action. 
This incredible union of government and corporation is made possible by an intricate series of docking mechanisms that will allow the Rickenbacker to piggyback its way into jump space. Sleek, fast, revolutionary. Who knows what wonders await our crews in the bosom of the cosmos. All we do know is that it's a great day for mankind. So it's the year 2114, and you take on the role of a soldier in cryosleep aboard a new faster-than-light starship called the Von Braun. As you sleep, your ship becomes infected by some strange alien eggs, which uh, were found after answering a distress call from the planet Tau Ceti 5. It turns out these eggs were the result of Shodan's genetic experimentations on Citadel Station. They, and Shodan herself, survived the destruction of the station in the last game. However, once they crashed, Shodan was forced into hibernation. While she slept, her mutants evolved beyond her control. The only way to survive now is to form an uneasy alliance with Shodan and help her defeat her now out-of-control creation, the Many. Now, System Shock 2 was even better than the first game in a lot of respects. It leveraged the Dark Engine originally used in uh, the first Thief game, which uh, Doug Church worked on immediately after the original System Shock. It boasted full 3D characters and all the awesome audio and gameplay features we discussed way back in the Thief show. Uh, the roleplay elements, which were around but not very important, in fact almost non-existent in the first game, we kicked up to 11 and uh, the survival horror aspects were also greatly increased. You know, if the first game made you uneasy, the second one downright scares the crap out of you. Now that was both a blessing and a curse as... Uh, the game honestly didn't sell all that well when it released. You know, despite the fact that it received award after award and has been lauded as a lesson in proper game design, you know, many, many developers, especially those designing FPSs, refer to System Shock 2 as the benchmark for their genre. So what does the future hold for System Shock? Well, Rumors have been flying around about a System Shock 3 for years, but EA still holds the rights and is not doing a damn thing with them. Uh, Ken Levine, as we well know, would go on to create the Bioshock series, which he says are not necessarily direct sequels, but spiritual successors to System Shock. And, you know, if you go play Bioshock, especially the first game, and yeah, I think probably Bioshock Infinite as well, there's definitely a lot of elements from System Shock, you know, like finding audio logs and, uh, you know, all kind of being alone a lot of the time, all kinds of things like that. Even, you know, some uh, some of the uh, the bad guys are reminiscent, you know, the big daddies and all that stuff are a bit reminiscent of, uh, of enemies in System Shock. Recently, though, in better news, uh, Night Dive Studios published System Shock Enhanced Edition over on GOG and also on Steam. Uh, this Enhanced Edition boosts the first game's resolution up to 1024 by 768. It adds mouse look controls and a whole bunch of other quality of life improvements that make quite a few of the poor control scheme complaints go away. So with this in mind, System Shock Enhanced Edition is available on GOG.com and Steam. Uh, when you buy it, 
You also get a copy of the original version of the game, but I really do recommend you play the enhanced one. Uh, it can be bought for $9.99 USD. System Shock 2 in its original form is also available on GOG and Steam for $9.99 as well. Yo, blockers! This is Amiru Nakago, and you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. Keep being awesome, and remember, can't beat a Corley. Okay, email time. We got a couple, we got a, an email and two voicemails here. Uh, voicemails are a little on the longer side, but, uh, you know, they say some good stuff. So let's begin with uh, the email from Robert. And Robert writes, Hi, Joe. I've listened to a few episodes of your podcast and thought I'd send in an email for the show. I see that you're covering System Shock next. I somehow missed this entire series back in the day. So late last year, I finally got around to playing the most beloved game of the series, System Shock 2. I'm sure this is entirely because I have no nostalgia for it and because I tend to be an impatient gamer, but I could not bring myself to like it. In fact, I pushed on to about the 90% point and finally gave up because I honestly had not enjoyed a single minute of playing the game. I'm perfectly willing to admit that uh, that may make me a crazy person because I've literally never heard anyone else who's played the game give it anything but great praise. I think for me, I was constantly getting lost in levels And additionally, I often had a hard time figuring out where I needed to go, regardless of whether uh, I even knew how to get there. On top of that, I found the combat boring. I realized the story is good, and back in the day, the exploration, story, and graphics were way ahead of their time. But playing it now, I could just not find any fun in it. Anyway, I'm sure you've observed this and will probably mention it on UMB anyways, But just in case, have you ever noticed how many similarities between System Shock 2 and Ken Levine's more recent highly lauded game, Bioshock? Story-driven shooter with RPG elements, sci-fi horror setting, enemies are normal people that were turned bad, a story told through audio journals that everyone apparently leaves scattered all over the place, protagonist is uh, led through the world by a more knowledgeable character speaking to him remotely. Maybe it's just me, but the security bots and the big daddies seem very similar to me. Uh, spoiler, said knowledgeable character turns out to be the bad guy and the final boss. And of course, the obvious, both titles end in shock. For the record, I thought Bioshock was all right, though not nearly as good as everyone else did. Uh, the first half, I'd say, was great, and then it became a bit stale after that. I haven't played Bioshock 2 or Infinite, though I do plan to eventually play the latter. Keep up the good work on UMB, Robert Ring. Well, thanks, Robert. And, um, yeah, you know, obviously, I think I just mentioned it. <laughs> in fact, quite a few of the points that you uh, said, maybe because I had your email in the back of my head. But uh, yeah, I mean, Ken Levine has has said it himself that Bioshock is absolutely 100% a spiritual successor to uh, to System Shock and specifically uh, System System Shock 2. And, um, you know, you're not crazy. Everyone's got an opinion. And, uh, you know, not every game is for everyone. So if you didn't enjoy it, well, that's, you know, that's for you not to enjoy, and I'm sure you like games that other people don't like. So, eh, to each his own. That's 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 what I say, and you know, my verdict will be coming soon. Next, we have a voicemail from Greg. So, take it away, Greg. Hello, Joe and fellow podcast listeners. Uh, this is Greg, aka Soblazer, uh, here to talk about one of my most favorite uh, PC games of all time, System Shock. This is a great game, and it's kind of funny that when I mentioned this game in my last uh, feedback, the game was not yet available on GOG. So I was like, really ironic that it's available now. I'm really glad it is because this is a great game that pretty much got ignored uh, like when it came out 20 years ago, unfortunately. It was just a, just a victim of bad timing like when it came out because this is the... 
type exists and, it, and to a slightly, slightly lesser degree it's sequel. Uh, but it's a great game. Uh, I bought System Shock uh, shortly after its release. Uh, I was 18, a freshman in college. Uh, money was tight to buy, to, to buy games, but I heard how good this game was and they, um, this game is really an amazing game. I could gush on on this game for a long time, but uh, it's a very fun blend of first-person shooter and RPG elements. It really reminds me a lot about other game series that have come both before and after. There's elements of Thief and Metal Gear and Resident Evil and Doom, uh, like all mixed into this game. Plus the people, some of the people at least, who like made the Decision Shot games went on to also create the Bioshock games, which are also excellent games. So. Uh, so it's, so it's, like, it's really nice to see, like, where a lot of, uh, like to see, like, where that lineage comes from. Um, almost everything about this game is perfect. Uh, the controls work very well. They're a little clunky by today's standards. Uh, but they still work, like, very, very nicely. Uh, the graphics are very good. Uh, it really, like, really portrays a very, uh, stark and foreboding picture, like, about what happened in Citadel Station and just the chaos and the wreck that's left behind. The music is excellent. It's really a great soundtrack when I listen to it on a regular basis. The story is very gripping, very well told. Uh, um, I'm sure Joe's gonna talk about, like, in the podcast about how due to the, uh, uh, programming computer limitations at the time, the, the, the developers decided it, it, it was easier to tell the story in, in like the form of audio messages and, and, and logs as opposed to having having living people like in the game. Um, the voice acting is varied. Sheldon's amazing. Uh, uh, just a really good, good uh, blending of a seductive yet scary uh, a, a voice done for her. Rebecca's also solid. Most of the voice acting it sounds like it's done by like just employees of the company, but. Um, but the voice acting really does help to really uh, immerse you deeply, uh, like in the game. Um, weapons are very well balanced. Items are plentiful uh, to find. Uh, like pretty uh, balanced. Um, you're really challenged in the game to try to go through the game uh, like the combination of sneak and fighting uh, because you can't waste your limited resources on trying to blast your way through everything, especially since enemies like, respond. So you really got to be careful like what you use. Um, the game is scary without really being as overly powerful scary. Uh, I'm pretty timid when it comes to games uh, of scary nature and whatnot, so uh, while I do have to take breaks playing System Shock, it's not quite as bad as the sequel or some of the other games the, the games have come out since then. Uh, there are some jump scares in the game, though, at least four I can think about that are very, very good, especially the first time you like, run into them. The only really, the only really weak part of the game, I think, is cyberspace. Uh, it was cool at the time it came out, but the cyberspace uh, parts of the game are difficult to control. It's hard to see and navigate around. Uh, you're under severe time limit, uh, so this is definitely an area of like we're ha- like we're having this turn all the way down to zero before we start the game is good. Is good, and the fact you can pick mix and match the difficulty settings so well really makes it a very challenging um, way to play the game like anytime you want to, and really allows for some very nice a. Uh, uh, gameplay balancing elements. All in all, this is an awesome game. I'm thrilled it's finally like available on GOG. Enhanced version is very good. Uh, the higher resolutions, like uh, uh, designed for modern monitors, like like look wonderful. Uh, the game text is also the game text is also like a bit easier to read. Uh, uh, I like in that format. And the uh, the mouse look uh, the interface gives you an alternative way to. Be, so to play the game. Uh, I prefer the old-fashioned style of the keyboard and mouse combination, but you know, your mileage feel like may vary. 
Um, you definitely, you definitely have a very foreboding sense of playing this game, or just how difficult, to, 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 to difficult the game, the game can be at first. But, uh, but my advice is just to hang in there. Uh, everything works very well. The music, the, the graphics, the gameplay to really provide a very gripping and, and, and dark experience. You really need to balance your need to explore each level carefully to find items and security cameras, like the fact that enemies respawn. So you're really picking your battles. Uh, very carefully and trying to have some like strategic movement, uh, like as you move around the station. Um, cyberpunk setting, like, uh, also really works very, very well, like for the whole overall, uh, uh, arch play of the game and how it feels and everything. Uh, in summary, this is an, uh, uh, in summary, this is an awesome game, uh, to one that I'm thrilled that Joe was finally, uh, playing and I certainly hope that, uh, that some of the listeners out there, if you've not played this game yet before, uh, definitely do so. This game gets my highest, uh, thumbs up. It definitely is a classic and one of the best PC games, like, of all time. Um, the sequel is also very good. Not quite as good as this one, I think, but it, you know, but still a very, you know, a very fun and gripping game and, uh, and that game also is available, uh, it's available on GOG. So definitely check that one out also. So, in short, uh, keep up the awesome work in the podcast, Joe. Now that I'm all caught up, like I'm really loving all the um, all the episodes that you did. Uh, I'll hopefully be submitting like more regular uh, feedback on games. Uh, you know that I am current. And take care, all. Well, thanks so much, Greg, and uh, amazing, amazing, good, detailed comments there. That uh, you know, because I don't have a ton of experience with the game, so I'm glad that uh, that some people are writing in with their their memories of it. Uh, I also have to thank Greg for, uh, you know, when I did go through my play session, he gave me a bit of a lowdown on some strategies and, uh, I didn't really talk about the, uh, the difficulty settings, but yeah, you can set difficulty settings for, you know, the, the story where it'll skip some story points or the puzzle difficulty, cyberspace combat. So I think there's something like four or five or six, I think it's four. Yeah. It might be four different, uh, difficulty settings. And, uh, so, you know, you really can, can tune the experience so thanks for that and thanks for 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 those pointers that uh let me get in as far to the game as uh as i did next up we've got another voicemail from tomer so take it away tomer so hello joe and fellow blockers uh, i'm tomer gabel from israel and i'm uh, writing in or, or phoning in whatever uh to discuss one of my favorite games slash game series ever which is system shock so i largely consider both system shock games to be uh kind of milestones in uh, computer gaming history. Both games were, I feel, well ahead of the curve uh, in every respect, both uh, in storytelling and technically. uh, They were both really, really advanced games, uh, really well written, really well uh, uh, well executed, uh, well designed, just really, really brilliant games. And they're uh, so vastly different you know, from each other, and that's that's one of the beautiful aspects of it, I feel, is that uh, for the sequel, Irrational Games, which produced the sequel, uh, as opposed to, uh, I think, uh, what is it, Looking Glass Studios, I think, for the first one, uh, really, really uh, managed to nail what System Shock is all about, while still, you know, pretty much refreshing everything about the game and putting their own spin on it, which I felt was really, really impressive. Uh, but generally speaking, both games had, uh, you know, really, really great graphics for the day, uh, really great music, uh, excellent writing, uh, very kind of novel or interesting game mechanics. I mean, um, this whole thing about basically telling the, the backdrop, the background story, 
uh, through audio logs that you find scattered all over the place and, and some of these are just really 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 creepy uh, and most are well written uh, they you know they manage to convey a lot of sort of the atmosphere and uh, you know the, the essential bits of what happened prior to when the game actually takes place without either giving away too much of what is actually going on you know the, you sort of have to piece it together as you uh, as you listen to these audio logs but also what I found remarkable was that um, you know they managed to convey uh, the back the backdrop the background story um, without actually focusing on it it's all you know small snippets of things that are uh, that have been happening on the, the either the, the space station in, uh, in System Shock 1 or the Yunnan Rickenbacker in, in System Shock 2. Um, and I felt that it was just a, a really, really clever mechanic where they tell you know, little bits about what happens to extremely minor character, most of which you, you will never actually get to meet or you know certainly not interact with in either game. But you still, they still sort of resonate with you. They're like the, the you know, the nominal employees of either the, the station or Trioptimum Core or, you know, the, the Rickenbacker. Whatever it is, they're just doing their everyday stuff and, you know, all hell breaks loose around them. And it's really, really fascinating the way that they've, um, uh, that the respective developers have opted to uh, sort of write these uh, monologues or, or audio snippets um, and uh, you know uh, that that still works right they did the same in, in Bioshock and that worked really really well uh, for that series uh, and it's you know it's not surprising that a lot of people sort of perceive Bioshock to be the spiritual successor to System Shock in many ways I feel that as far as kind of gameplay and story mechanics are concerned that's actually a pretty apt uh, app description of Bioshock. So regardless, System Shock had, you know, beyond the, the really, really, really well-written story and the great graphics and the great music, it also had what I still think of as the best kind of rampant AI villain in any game or movie to date. Uh, you know, Shodan is creepy as hell, very, very kind of interesting, very surprising, you know, she keeps you off guard in every sense of the word, she likes to taunt you, she has a, a real distinct personality, and, you know, contrast to uh, sort of a contemporary, uh, similar rampant AI story, which is uh, the Terminator with Skynet, Skynet has no personality, it's just ominous, whereas with the System Shock, you know, Shodan kind of dogs you, uh, dogs you around the station and, and taunts you and takes a very personal kind of interest in you um, as the protagonist, which is, you know, I, I felt was really, really fresh and really well done uh, throughout both of these games. And I feel that, you know, that really the only kind of uh, uh, consistent criticism about either System Shock games around the interface and I feel that in many ways it's, uh, on the one hand, it's uh, justifiable criticism in that, you know, both games have have complex interfaces that, that have a steep learning curve and they take some getting used to. 
I still feel that whereas with the first system shock, uh, the interface really is a bit convoluted and it takes quite a while to get used to. And uh, you know, the GOG version I think has mouse look, which you'll probably touch on, and it, it might have improved matters. Uh, with System Shock 2, the interface is not convoluted, it's merely complex. There's a lot of stuff going on, you know, it's, it's more, uh, you know, it's more leaning towards the RPG side of the spectrum on the, you know, on the action RPG style gameplay. And uh, I just felt that it actually worked really, really well. It, it was never kind of a hindrance. Uh, with System Shock 1, it's it's a bit more difficult uh, and, and can get frustrating, but also the game is a lot more kind of slower paced. You don't need uh, Twitch, uh, you know, Twitch responses or that sort of thing to get by. So I feel that it, the game had been, uh, you know, lambasted uh, without sort of the, the right kind of justification to that criticism. Still, regardless of the interface issues, both games are just amazing, really, really worthwhile. Uh, I also credit, uh, I've spoken about this on, uh, on Square Waves FM before, I think. Um, I also credit System Shock 2 as being the one game that actually managed to scare me, ever. Uh, that's not easy to do. So, yeah, I mean, just go play these games, they're fantastic. Uh, even though they haven't necessarily aged particularly well, they're still extremely worthwhile. Uh, you know, once you get past the initial hurdles, the, the initial like hour or two of gameplay, they'll just suck you in and never, ever, ever let go. Um, I'll just finish with a, a bit of a curiosity. Apparently the original System Shock also had a, a Mac version that actually had, instead of the general MIDI soundtrack, uh, it had digital audio renditions of the soundtrack on CD that were actually really, really, really good. Um, and I got to play that on a, on a Power Mac uh, 8500 that a friend of mine uh, sort of scrounged for me uh, out of some weird-ass warehouse with, you know, all sorts of, like, defunct hardware. Uh, uh, that was for sale for really, really cheap. So I actually got to try it out, and, uh, you know, it's the same game. It has uh, basically the same controls on a Mac, if I remember correctly. It's just the music. The music was really, 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 really fantastic on that version. So if you're, uh, you know, if you at all like the System Shock 1 soundtrack, just go and look it up. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's widely available on the internet and, and definitely worth looking into. So I'm really looking forward to the episode. Thank you very much for, uh, you know, for getting to this really, really fantastic game series. Finally, uh, I've been looking forward to this episode for pretty much uh, the length of time I've been familiar with the show. So thank you, and, uh, you know, see you next time. Cheers. Thanks so much, Tomer. Uh, you know, great comments. And, yeah, you know, on the soundtrack, I have to agree. The soundtrack is great, and... Um, it's definitely widely available if you buy the game on GOG. It's uh, it's included there for download. That's where I grabbed it for uh, for this show. They have it in MP3. They have it in FLAC. They have it in the original MIDI. So uh, yeah, there's lots of resources for that. And yeah, so thanks for for confirming. I, I for some reason I had a little brain fart and I became unsure as to whether or not the uh, the original System Shock had mouse look. And and I, yes, it it does not. And uh, it definitely made, with me not being familiar with the control scheme, it definitely made my life a little bit easier. So thanks, great comments from both you guys, great emails, great everything, and uh, let's uh, let's get to the, the big part. 
All right, so now we find ourselves at the big question. Does System Shock hold up today? Well, as we've heard, everyone's got their opinion on this, uh, and uh, you know it's going in both directions. But uh, you know, let me say this. Whether these games hold up or not today is basically irrelevant. They are immensely important to the field of video game design. I mean, you almost have to play them just to see where a lot of the mechanics and the tropes we've come to expect from our AAA games originated from. As I was playing the first game, I couldn't help but feel like I was walking around in in the proto-Half-Life or the proto-Halo, definitely the proto-Bioshock. I mean, basically any story-driven first-person shooter can find its roots in this game. Any game where exploration allows a story to unfold can find its roots here. Any game with an interesting and compelling antagonist may have found inspiration in Shodan. I mean, all that to say that these are both very important games. Do I enjoy them personally? Yes, in theory. I played a good three to four hours of System Shock Enhanced Edition in research for this show. And, uh, you know, you can go watch that on YouTube. You can go check the Twitter feed. You can go check the Facebook feed. Basically, in a lot of some ways, I'm going to agree with uh, with the reviewers. The controls are poor. It's hard to do anything quickly. It's hard to fight. It's hard to reload your weapons in a pinch. There are strategies around these things, like keeping you know a bunch of spark beams set to overload and failing through them, you know, as they overheat. Uh, but I found myself, you know, even doing these things and doing this research, I was fighting the UI a lot of the time. You know, the Enhanced Edition does add mouse look to the game, which which helps immensely, like I said. But to do anything, you either have to keep hitting E to swap in and out of mouse look, or sometimes, you know, a fight would break out while I was doing something else, and I'd spend precious seconds flailing around trying to figure out why my dude wasn't turning and why he wasn't shooting, and, and all to realize that, oh, I picked something up, and that automatically disables mouse look, and then you have to turn it back on, and then, oh, well, I'll do it with the mouse, but now I can't remember how to turn. So it's just like, when you're in a jam, that's really when the... the the complicated controls really start to fall down. Uh, My second and probably more pressing issue, because controls you can get used to, but my more pressing issue with this was the maps. Citadel Station is a damn maze, and I don't like mazes. You know, I, I actually had a third video in my research series, which was just me wandering around the research level in circles trying to find one damned room. Eventually, I got frustrated, and I gave up. I hate mazes. Maybe I'll put that video up on the YouTube channel so you guys can see me get frustrated and finally give up on something. Uh, You know, it's too bad. Because when I wasn't lost or I wasn't fighting the controls, I did have an amazing time. You know, the team did what they set out to do. I was immersed in a world. I was nervous. I loved every time I found a new audio log, which shed a little bit more light on, on, you know, where I was and what I should be doing. The storytelling in this game is incredible. I just wish they made it a little bit easier to play. You know, in many ways, System Shock 2 is uh, is a superior game, at least from the perspective, like Tomer said, of the controls. I mean, it looks better, it controls better. It's a little bit more of an RPG than this one was. And again, it has a very compelling story. Uh, if I'm going to recommend you play one of them, play the second one. It's more fun. I find it's, it's a better experience. The first game, though, is great and important, and I'm not going to say don't play it. But, you know, keep in mind, 
it may frustrate you from time to time, especially if, like me, you have a bad sense of direction and you get lost easily. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's that. Thanks to everyone for their contributions. This was a great one. This was one of probably one of the longer shows that I've done, but uh, you know, it was uh, it was important, and I had to take the time that it took. And you know, I wandered off a little bit in tech focus, but hey, it's my show. So if I want to talk about uh, DOS 5.0, then I can. <laughs> Next time, though, I'm gonna butt right up against the modern end of uh, my time frame. 94 for this one. I'm about kind of like middle to late middle. But I'm going right to the end, 1999. I'm going to hit up a genre I haven't touched in a while with the Space RTS Powerhouse Homeworld. So I'm excited to get into it. I even have an original boxed copy right next to me here that I uh, won in a giveaway. So I'm going to install that and, uh, and play it and have some fun. As always, you can send email. You can send audio comments just like everyone today did to podcast at umbcast.com. I want to thank Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can contribute over at patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the podcast, please consider joining all my current patrons and donating a little bit per show to help me with the cost, you know, of running things and buying games and doing giveaways and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, if we get a little further, I've started doing a couple of little YouTube streams and I've got a little project going, but, uh, if we get up to 150 bucks a show, I'm going to go every week, put out a video, do a thing, and uh, get some more stuff going up on YouTube because uh, it seems like you guys like that kind of thing. You can check out show notes for this show and all the other shows at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. I'm watching that stuff all the time. It's probably the best way to get me. Uh, you can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. You can go watch me play uh, at least the first two levels of uh, System Shock Enhanced Edition over there. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me five-star reviews. That is that, and we will see you next time for Homeworld here in the Upper Memory Block. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.